Well, as we continue our exposition of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, we find ourselves really landing at the tail end of exploring perhaps one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses pertaining to church life and practice. And so we're going to spend some time on this final little section at the end of this uh, narrative passage here. But let's not waste any time. Let's jump right to it. So Matthew chapter 16 in your Bible. Matthew 16. This really brings us to a point where Jesus has set aside some time along the journey to Caesarea Philippi. He and the disciples are there in this region, and he really reveals to them a series of profound truths uh, regarding the nature of and the creation of the church. Of course, Jesus doesn't begin with the church. He instead begins with a revelation of his own identity. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So to recap where we are, we start off by seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. He opens up and uh, poses an open-ended question to the disciples, really asking for a general survey of the popular opinion to kind of get their minds moving here. He asks them in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this title, Son of Man, is a messianic title that we get from Daniel chapter 7, amongst other places, refers to the one that is coming down from heaven to earth who looks like a man. And so we understand this is God in human flesh with the appearance of a man. In other words, it's shorthand for the title of the incarnated Christ Jesus. And it was one of his favorite self-designations. So the question is, well, who do people say that I am? That's what he's asking. And they give him an answer in verse 14. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others think that you're Elijah. Some others think that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so they give kind of this sort of general response of his question. I don't think Jesus is really too concerned with the popular opinion. But rather, he gives an opportunity to ask a more pointed question. Verse 15, here's the big question. Who do you all say that I am? That's the big question. And that's what he's asking the disciples. And it's at this point that Simon Peter speaks up acting as the spokesman for the whole group, and he says in verse 15, or excuse me, 16, you are the Christ. Another word for Christ is Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what is known as the Great Confession, whereby Peter declares that Jesus is both the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior, and the Son of the living God. He is true deity. He is God in human flesh. And Jesus rejoices at this statement. He says, Blessed are you, 
Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't come up with this on your own. Someone didn't tell this to you. You didn't just spend all this time and study and arrive at a logical conclusion. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This has been divinely given, divinely understood, divinely received. And because of this, he says, Peter, you're blessed. You've received the the favor of God who's given this confession to you. Blessed are you. Happy are you. You are to rejoice at this wonderful new confession. And the confession really is a sign of his saving faith. It's not just the words, it's what's behind the words. Peter now really believes this, and so do the disciples. And so he's building on this new confession of saving faith. Jesus moves ahead to reveal the impending arrival of a new entity that's built on this saving faith, and that is the foundation of the church. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter. He changes his name. He gives him a new name, but he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And we understood and we looked at this a couple weeks ago that the rock he's referring to him is not him himself. It's not that Peter is the foundation. Otherwise, Peter's own words in his later letters don't make any sense. And Peter understands and Jesus understands and the rest of the Bible teaches that it's not Peter that is the rock of the foundation of the church, but rather it's the confession, the saving confession of faith in Jesus that becomes the, the, the rock on which all things are built with regards to the church. And, and who is the object of our saving faith? Well, it's Jesus. So if that is the, the foundation point here, then Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone, and that's what Peter says in First Peter chapter 2. And so this faithful confession of Jesus as Messiah in God, that's what Jesus builds his church on. And what is the church? Well, it is the assembly, the gathering, the congregation of Christian believers who have been called out of darkness and death and into the marvelous light of Christ. The church is the household of God, the universal congregation of all believers And Christ himself promises to build this church and to do so in such a way that the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And we have spent some time really glancing at the beauty and the loveliness of the church, the nature of it, the essentiality of the church. She is the earthly expression of Christ's body, the pillar and support of the truth, the conscience of every nation, and the only institution that Jesus Christ himself has promised to build and sustain. But then verse 19 really adds one more component to all of this. And really, if you kind of rehearse in your mind where we've been in this passage, we've covered a lot of territory, haven't we? This is pretty robust, and really, more time could be spent. Every preacher says that, by the way. More time could be spent here, but I really mean it. More time could be spent. We could really do a lot more here. And greater preachers have done far more with this text, but I, for our purposes, I really have just been trying to build this doctrine in your understanding and help you and myself understand this more. But we're going to land here in verse 19. Not only does the Lord promise to build his church, but he promises to give her something that belongs to him alone. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this verse has been the, the subject of much misunderstanding and must, much misapplication over the years. But for the rest of our time this morning, I really want to delve into this. I want to clarify 
what this verse means and how it is to be applied. The verse part of verse 19 really is consisting of Jesus' promise. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in order to understand what he means here, I think we have to ask a couple of questions of the text. It's right for us to really attack the text with our our questions, our inquisitiveness, because we want to draw out what the meaning of this is. And so we're going to ask three questions this morning. Three questions. Number one, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? What are the keys? Number two, to whom are they given? And number three, on what authority can they be given? So what are the keys To whom have they been given and what authority have they been given? The first question is this. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Now to answer this question, we have to really start by examining the Bible's use of the notion of keys. The Bible's full of symbols and metaphor and types and all kinds of things like that. The Bible uses word pictures and analogies and devices to to give us understanding of complex things. All the time the Bible does this, and so one of these imageries that we see used over and over again is this notion of keys. One prime example of this symbol comes to us in Isaiah 22, when God issues a denunciation against Jerusalem for their unfaithfulness. The king at that time is Hezekiah. Hezekiah has relied on the stewardship of a servant named Shebna to oversee various aspects of his kingdom. So Shebna is the householder. He's the one who's in charge of running the king's house. But Shebna is a prideful steward, and he's, he does not trust the Lord. He only trusts in his own devices. And so the Lord prophesies in Isaiah 22, speaking in regards to this unworthy servant, Shebna, he says, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your tunic, and I will tie your sash securely about him. Listen to this. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then listen to this. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Does that sound familiar to you just a little bit? There's some some carryover of some imagery here coming from Isaiah. Isaiah describes God giving full authority of the house of David, the whole house of David, to not Shebna, but to Eliakim, this new servant. In other words, the Davidic king, Hezekiah, his house is going to be accessed with full authority by one who will possess the key, the key of the house of David. And so here you have this key as a metaphor for authority and access. When you want to have access to someone's home or a building. I was just handed a key this morning to the new building. You have a key to get into all that that entails. And so that's what we're talking about here. There's a spiritual application here which we're going to explore. And so Eliakim had the key to the king's household. Keep that in your mind as we progress here. In the New Testament, there are more key metaphors that are used. In Luke 11.52, Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for taking away the key of knowledge, the key of knowledge, access to divine knowledge here, from those who are trying to understand spiritual things. Jesus is rebuking them. He says, by doing so, not only are you hindering other people from gaining spiritual knowledge and access to knowledge, but you're also yourselves pulling yourselves away from true knowledge. 
And so you have taken away the key of knowledge, access to knowledge, by your hard-heartedness. He rebukes them for their mishandling of the key of knowledge. Revelation 1.18, we see Christ asserting His authority over death and over the afterlife, and He claims to have the keys of death and Hades. The keys of death and Hades. Revelation 9.1, the key to the bottomless pit, which is the abyss is given to the one, of, one of the angels here. Revelation 20, verse 1, again, the key of the abyss is given to one of the angels by the Lord. And so again, in Scripture, over and over again, we see that keys signify access and authority. In Matthew sixteen nineteen, Jesus here is promising full authority of access to the kingdom of heaven. Which leads us to then the next question. Okay, we're gaining access now to the kingdom of heaven. We're gaining some level of authority pertaining to the kingdom of heaven. Well, to whom is this given? Who receives this, these keys of the kingdom? Well, this has been the subject of much debate. Much debate. What we know in this passage, Jesus is speaking to Peter. So he's talking to Peter. That's very clear here. But we understand that Peter is really the representative figurehead of all the disciples. That's been the case earlier in the previous verses. He's not just talking to Peter. He says, who do you all? Remember, the you is the plural here. So he's talking to you all, all the disciples that are in front of him. Peter's just the figurehead. And so it seems logical to keep on moving here and saying he's talking, yes, to Peter directly. There's no doubt about that. But the implication is this is being applied then to all the disciples. Others have claimed even further that Jesus is not only speaking to Peter and all the disciples, but also to all believers by virtue of what this is entailing here. But the question is, why is this so controversial? Why is it such a big deal? Well, because of what the power of the keys signify. What does this signify? Looking at the next phrase here, he says here the promise, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. To what is this referring? Well, the Roman Catholic Church believes that this is teaching that Christ is giving Peter and his successors authority to receive or exclude people from salvation. In essence, and this is what we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Pope, the office of the papacy, is the successive line coming from Peter, who they believe is the original pope. Now, we don't agree with that. We would say that that is not what the Bible is teaching about this sort of uh, apostolic office. We don't believe that that is a papal office, but we have dealt with that elsewhere. But really, the idea here is that the pope himself, along with all those who retain the authority of the papacy, have the power to open and shut the gates of heaven. However, this flies in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture. No person on earth can bar another person from entering heaven by their own will. So John chapter 1, verse, I believe it's 13, 12 and 13, that children of God are not born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. God determines who goes into heaven based on His grace through faith in Christ. So not even an individual person can bar themselves from heaven if they have saving faith, and no other person can bar another person from going to heaven. I can't say to you, you can't go to heaven. Or I can't say to you, you are now released from the bonds of hell. 
That authority does not belong to anyone here. No person, including the Pope, is allowed to say, heaven for you, hell for you. Now, not every single Catholic scholar would agree with that characterization, but this is one of the issues that Martin Luther was facing in the 1500s. His argument, if you read his 95 Theses and a lot of his other writings, his argument was this. If the Pope has the power to open and close purgatory, that was his main contention was purgatory, if, that, if he has that power to open and close the gates of purgatory, here's the argumentation. Why then would you not just open the doors and let everybody out? That was his contention. All right, Pope, if you have the authority, why are you letting people go to hell? Open the gates if you have the authority to, to do so. Yet biblical scholars have tried to understand exactly what is he talking about? What are the keys of the kingdom and to whom have they been given? Again, I believe it's clear that the Bible does not say a person, a single person or a group has the right to access and control heaven. So what does this mean? What exactly are the keys and what does it mean to bind and loose them? Many scholars believe that this pertains to the forgiveness of sins, but not in the way that Rome asserts. Well, why? Well, Matthew 18 says that the same binding and loosing here is connected to church discipline. If you read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, it's almost the same phrasing, binding and loosing, same thing, and it's applied to church discipline. So you kind of put those two together and say, okay, there's something about forgiveness of sins here. We see that in John 20, 23, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So does this mean then, logically, that Peter or the apostles or any believer can judicially, legally, forgive sins? Well, Matthew 9, 6 asserts that only Christ has the authority by heaven to forgive sins. So what's going on? In 1644, a Puritan scholar, pastor named John Cotton, who I love, by the way, John Cotton published what came to be known, his best-known work, titled The Keys of the Kingdom of Heaven. So influential was this book, by the way, that upon reading it, the great John Owen, one of the greatest Puritan scholars in history, John Owen actually changed his position on church polity after reading this book. Cotton argues here that the keys, the keys of the kingdom, are the ordinances of Christ that he has instituted specifically the preaching of the Word of God and the administration of seals and censures. And the binding and loosing pertains to what the church will allow or retain or what we will disallow or remit. All of this is within the context of forgiveness of sins. Incidentally, this view is also held by early church fathers such as Chrysostom, as well as John Calvin, the modern-day R.C. Sproul. Many hold this position that this is referring to forgiveness of sins. But this authority has been given to the church but it is mitigated through her leaders. And so it works like this. When the, pre- when the gospel is preached, heaven is offered to the hearer. Okay? Anytime the gospel is proclaimed. Now, whether you, or, you, or not you respond to the gospel is a work of the heart. That's an issue of you and God. But the gospel itself is offered to the hearer. Okay? The preacher, on behalf of the church, because every time that as a minister of the gospel... Every time I'm preaching the gospel, I'm doing so as your shepherd and as one of 
the members here. First Peter talks about shepherding the flock among you, meaning that I'm one of the flock here. I'm a member of Harvest Bible Church just like everybody else here. And so I'm doing so on your behalf. So the preacher on behalf of the church under the authority of Christ in submission to the Scriptures, the preacher announces that God is willing to forgive the sins of any who will repent and trust in Christ. And that promise is binding on earth. As soon as that word leaves my mouth, that salvation is offered to you, if you trust in the promises of Christ, you believe the gospel, turn from your sins, seek forgiveness from God, and I can say and declare boldly, you will be saved. That's binding on earth as it is in heaven. And so when a person hears that message and believes it, do you know what happens? The key turns and the gates of heaven are now opened and those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ now enter in to heaven. In other words, the proclamation of the gospel turns the key and opens up heaven to all those who would enter into it. In this way, salvation is opened or released or loosed to those who hear. However, the preacher also tells the sinner that if they don't repent of their sins, that heaven will be bound up for them and closed forever. You now pronounce that judgment from God will fall on them. That's not just an idle promise there. You're speaking on behalf of God for the sake of the church under the authority of the Scriptures, to proclaim that if you don't trust in Christ, if you don't repent of your sins, heaven will be closed up and you will perish. That is a promise from the mouth of God through the Scriptures proclaimed. The key then is turned and the door is locked. It's not that we're telling heaven what it can and cannot do. You must understand this. I'm not telling God anything about what he will or won't do. I'm not vesting or using my own authority saying, oh, I'm turning the key now and I'm going to try to sort of mitigate who's going in and out. It doesn't work like that. Rather, we believers, we are operating under the assumed authority that promises eternal life for the confessions of sin and faith in Christ. And so, Christian, you can tell anyone, and I should say you should tell everyone, that if they, if a person, confesses their sins to God, you can tell them this, if you confess to God, not to your pastor, not to a priest, not to somebody else, if you confess your sins to God and believe and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, beloved, you can tell people, God will forgive you. And someone might say to you, I don't know. I don't know if I can be forgiven. You can say, yes, you can be. If you confess earnestly, if you really do, pour out your heart before God, you can tell your friend, my friend, God will forgive you. He will forgive you. He will save you. Well, how, how do you know? How do you know? You go to verses like 1 John 1, 9. I quote that verse all the time. I've memorized it. I have it hidden in my heart. You should too. I would encourage you this way. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive sins and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. That's a promise you can hold on to. And you can tell other people, if you confess, not only is God faithful, but God is also just 
How can God be just to forgive my sins? Well, because Jesus has been the one who's paid for those sins. His justice has been satisfied. God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So because God is just and poured out His judgment on the Son who pays for our sin, He is justified to give you eternal life. And you're justified by faith in Christ. So God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and not only that, but to cleanse you. You can actually have spiritual healing. God can do a work in your life of sanctification to begin to purify you so that you're not struggling with the same sin at the same level for the rest of your life. So not only will you be freed from the the eternal punishment of sin, You can be slowly purged from the power of sin and one day you'll be completely released from all presence of that sin. You can promise people that because of the Word of God, the authority of God given in the Scriptures, borne witness to by the whole church of the living God. Aren't we not the pillar and upholder and sustainer of truth? That's what this means. That we uphold this truth. Yeah, I might be the preacher today. But anytime you proclaim this truth to somebody else, you are exercising those keys of authority. Again, not on your own authority. It is mitigated through the Scriptures given to us by another. And so you have full authority to offer salvation to somebody in the Gospel. And that is why, beloved, that Jesus tells the disciples in John 20, 23 that if they forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. What does that mean? They're not saying, oh, bless you, you are forgiven. They're not pronouncing a forgiveness, but they're telling a person that if you're genuine, and and we sit down and we're praying together and you're confessing your sins and pouring out your heart to God, maybe you have tears in your eyes, maybe your voice is trembling as you confess deep, dark sins to God, and I can witness your repentance and say, it sounds like brother or sister, is this for real? Is this real repentance? And they say, yes, it is. And you can say, based on your profession of faith in Christ, based on your repentance and your confession of sins, my friend, God forgives you. Now, if they're lying, obviously that's not true. But you don't know that. Only God knows that, right? The secret things belong to God. But you have the right to tell a person if they repent and seek forgiveness from God, they can get it. I know that when I've done counseling, In the past, one of the things people struggle with is when they'll rehash old sins in their heart and in their mind. I'll tell you, it plagues so many people, probably all of us on some level, plaguing guilt and shame over old sins. They might be sins from five years ago, ten years ago, thirty years ago, fifty years ago. And they'll sit sit there and they'll, Pastor, oh, I just feel so terrible about what I did. And I'll usually say something like this, "Have, have you confessed that to God? Now, sometimes they say no, and well, that's your problem right there. Confess your sins to God. Go to Him for forgiveness. He'll forgive you. But if they say, I have confessed it, and I've been confessing it my whole life. I, I, I offer it up all the time to the Lord, and yet the enemy will use that against you. Satan loves to use our old sins, forgiven sins, against us. He'll bring it back up and say, oh, you should feel terrible about that. Oh, shame on you. Oh, you should, oh. I don't even think the Lord loves you anymore because that was a big sin. That's not true. When God forgives your sins, they're forgiven. And He removes them as far as the east is from the west. 
And so the enemy will use that. And so you can tell a person, have you confessed your sins to God? And they say with watery cheeks, tears pouring down their face, yes, I have. I've confessed, I've confessed, I've turned away. I don't do those sins anymore. I live differently because God has changed me. Then you are forgiven. Let it go. Are there consequences? Might you still feel consequences of sins? Of course. If your sins brought about a divorce and someone's left you because of your sin, well, the consequences of that follow you. But if you have been forgiven by God, then God forgives you. And even though you do suffer the consequences of sin in this life, you will not suffer the judgment of God in this life or the life to come. Your sins are forgiven. So you can tell a person. That's why Jesus is telling them in John 20 that that's what that means. The Heidelberg Catechism phrases it this way. Here's the question. How is the kingdom of heaven open and shut by the preaching of the gospel? Here's the answer. By proclaiming and openly witnessing according to the command of Christ to believers one and all that whoever they receive the promise excuse me, whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God and for the sake of Christ's merits. But then it adds this, and on the contrary, by proclaiming and witnessing to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation abide on them so long as they are not converted. That's what we're talking about here. This is a tremendous amount of authority as well as a great responsibility this is a very great responsibility where you can't just walk around and deem people saved and i'll tell you that is wrong, what is wrong with this sort of free grace movement the the easy believism that a preacher will stand up and say if you want to trust in jesus christ today and have eternal life go for it and a person might come forward and Maybe they'll raise their hand and they say, I do. And Now, you don't know what's going on with that person. And they raise their hand, they sign their name, and they, they count a, a new convert, and they say, congratulations, you're going to heaven. And, and they offer that so freely without really knowing what the person's doing. Now, again, I'm not talking about between you and God here. I'm talking about those on earth who are wielding the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, who are pronouncing people saved who probably shouldn't be. And it does so much damage when a preacher or a pastor will say, oh, well, yeah, of course they're a Christian. They've been going to church their whole life. Have you ever talked to them about their confession of faith? Have they ever confessed their sins before Christ? Have they ever confessed and been born again and had their life change at all? Well, not really. Then you can't tell them that. I'm always nervous with a new convert, not because I'm not excited for their faith, the Bible says that there, there is joy in the heavens when a sinner repents. There should be joy on earth as well. But I'm always a little bit cautious because I don't want to give them false assurance. You've got to be really careful. Am I a Christian? Well, let's talk about where your affections are. Have you trusted in Christ? Yes, I do. I, I believe. I trust in Him for my whole life. Have you confessed your sins? Yes, I have all of them. Is He changing you? Are you beginning to walk in righteousness? I think I am, and here's some of the ways I am. I'll praise the Lord for that. Then continue to walk in obedience. And you can tell them, the Lord is being kind to you. 
and you are, by all standards, a believer, a Christian. You treat them accordingly. Can somebody apostatize? Yes, they can. But what is our responsibility? What is our authority on earth? It is to offer the promises of the gospel and also the promises of condemnation for those who don't turn. But consider where the charge is coming from. Where is this coming from? Do we just have the right on our own authority to do whatever we want here? No, last question here. On what authority can the keys of the kingdom be given? Look at the, word, the first word of verse 19 here. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. It's on Him. Jesus does this. Furthermore, it's rooted in His own authority. We see in Matthew 7.29 that Jesus demonstrates the divine authority in teaching. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where they say the crowds were amazed at His teaching because He was teaching as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus has authority in teaching. Matthew 10.1, Christ has authority over demons in the spiritual realm. John 5.27, Christ has authority to execute judgment. Luke 12.5 declares authority to cast sinners into hell. But praise the Lord, Matthew 9.6 says that Jesus has, has authority to forgive sins. So how does He earn such forgiveness? How does He have the right on earth to forgive those sins? Well, John 10.18 says Christ has the authority to lay down His life and the authority to take it up again. He says, this charge I've received from my Father. John 17.2 declares that the Father has given Him all authority over mankind and to all whom God has given Him, He gives them eternal life. Again, authority coming from the Father to the Son to wield as He sees fit. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus declares, all authority, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. And so who has the authority to give anybody anything? Jesus does. All authority belongs to Christ. And so Jesus is uniquely qualified to delegate His authority to whom He desires and to delegate it to His servants. And so He tells them, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We know that is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to offer forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life, to proclaim God's judgment against evil and punishment for unrepentant sins. And by operating within His delegated authority, the gates of heaven open and closed. For whatever is bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever is loosed on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then we see verse 20 here. Something curious to us. This comes at the end of this discourse here. So much has taken place. You've got to imagine their hearts are exploding in their chest. Their minds are totally blown with all this truth, all these realities. They want to go tell the world, don't they? I would. Tell everybody I know. Do you know, do you know what we just learned? But look at what Jesus does in verse 20. Then He warned the disciples that they should tell no one that He was the Christ. Why does He say this to them right now? Well, Jesus has been speaking about the heavenly kingdom of which he's the king, right? That's been the whole theme, all, the, all this whole entire passage. He says, in terms of confession of saving faith, 
flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but essentially heaven has revealed this to you. So the confession is heavenly. And then he says here, he's building this church on which the gates of hell will not overpower. This is a spiritual thing, so a heavenly reality as well. And now he's giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven in terms of authority for proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming judgment for sin. So all these heavenly spiritual realities here, earth-shattering truth, he's proclaiming the kingdom of which he's the king. Yet many of the disciples themselves, and certainly many of the followers, they're longing for an earthly king. And they didn't understand all of what this meant. And you see this all throughout the entire gospel narrative here. Even in John, I, th- I can't remember exactly the passage. I referenced it last week, but even in John's gospel where people, they try to seize Jesus to make him their king. And so they're longing for a divine reality on earth. We want a king now to deliver us from the Romans and to set up a, a national theocracy here. But Jesus knows that there's a lot that has to be done before that happens. That will happen someday, by the way. Jesus will reign on earth as he does in heaven. He will set up a throne. He will subdue all the nations the Bible teaches. But that's not happening right now. He's not happening then either. And he warns them not to tell people who he really was, at least until he comes, until he does what he came to do. Because he's not there to go and storm the gates on earth and overthrow Rome. How does he come in on Palm Sunday? He doesn't come in on a a stallion, a, a bright and beautiful horse with a sword in his hand. He comes in on the back of a foal of a donkey. He doesn't come in on streets of gold. He walks in on branches. He comes in to save now, Hosanna, Hosanna. He dies with a curse upon his head in the place of sinners. And so that is the work he had to come and do. He had to come and give his life. We always say things like, Jesus is the reason for the season, meaning Christmas, right? And we think about the baby in the manger. And we think about the the star and the shepherds and all those things. And those are wonderful realities. But why is Jesus the reason for why we celebrate? He's the reason because of why He came. He came to give His life as a ransom on the cross. He came to die in our place. He came to live a perfect light as the God-man, to offer up that perfect life as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. He came to bear the full weight of guilt and shame of sin, endure the full wrath of God on Himself, to suffer for us, to die for us, to be cursed for us. That's why that baby came, to become a man who would do that. And when He died, all of our judgment, all of our shame, all of our penalty died with Him. He was buried in the ground, rose the third day. And when He ascended in heaven, received Him. And the key turned and opened and welcomed in the One who fashioned that key. 
received him home, eternal life came home with him, and all those who are following behind him as those who trust in him alone for salvation, we have salvation because of Christ. And so as we proclaim that good news, we turn that key every single time. And we wield the authority of the keys of the kingdom to say to all people everywhere that you have sinned against God. Every single person, every one of our people on this planet have turned away from God. They've done their own thing. They've lived however they want to. They've sinned against God and are worthy of judgment and worthy of an eternity in hell. And it's not a joke. The world jokes about it. All my friends are in hell. I'm going to go party down there. No, you're not. You're going to suffer the judgment of God there. You're going to suffer the torment of your own sin. The torment of abandonment. The torment of the fury of God. And if you don't turn from your sins, I promise you, that's what's coming. Because God says so. However, I can also promise you this. If you repent of your sins and turn away, cast them away, and hate your sins and agree with God, God, you're right, I'm wrong. And I confess that all my sins are an offense to you and I I need them to be forgiven. Forgive my sins, Lord. Remove my guilt. Remove my shame. Remove my penalty, please. And I'm trusting in Christ alone as my righteousness, as my salvation. The Bible says if you trust in Jesus and put your faith only in Him, He will forgive you, you'll be set free, and He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you will have life not only here, renewed and restored and overjoyed here, but you will have an eternity of heaven and joy with Him someday. That's a promise I can declare that to you with the full authority of heaven. And beloved, you can too. We hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever is bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed as well in heaven. What a wonderful promise this is to those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you Because you, you are the one who possesses the keys of your kingdom. It is your kingdom that we proclaim. And yet, through the ministry of the Son, you have given us access to this authority, not of our own accord, to wield for our own prerogative or initiative or whatever our desire would be, but yet we are submitted our, we've submitted ourselves to Christ. That we wield His authority. And by the power of the Spirit who indwells every single believer, by the collective unity of the church of the living God, the household of faith, the, the pillar and support of truth, based on that Spirit-indwelled and Spirit-empowered ministry that we have, We uphold Your truth, O God. We proclaim Your excellencies and Your commands and Your laws and Your righteousness and Your gospel. 
we are your ambassadors and witnesses here because you've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And so, Lord, as you have given us these keys, Lord, help us to wield them with responsibility and with fervency and with earnestness and faithfulness. That we would not shy away from telling anyone and everyone the good news about Christ. We see so many around us, Lord, that are hurting and suffering who need the hope and assurance that they can be forgiven, that they can have eternal life. And so, Lord, help us to have the the courage and the boldness and the sincerity and the compassion and even the pity on other people to tell them the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And Lord, even though we are feeble, Father, my words fail so often. Our words seem so feeble. And sometimes we fumble over ourselves and we stutter and we misspeak and we lose our nerve and we struggle as clay pots. And yet, through the faithful proclamation of the Gospel, You save sinners. Thank You, Lord, for using such weak vessels as us to proclaim the marvelous excellencies of Your truth. Thank You, Lord, for having mercy and showing grace on Your church. And as we continue to grow, let us, Lord, not be overcome by the gates of hell, but proclaim Your truth and sustain until the day of Christ Jesus. And we claim that promise from Your Scriptures. Lord, how marvelous and how wonderful You are. A God to be praised and to be glorified among the saints. To Your name be all honor and all glory forever and ever. Amen.